Nancy Richards. We're next up here on SFM Literature, it's story time, and I'm bringing you a story this time. On a recent trip to England, I got to travel around a bit, and like a recurring theme, women writers just seem to keep coming into focus. It wasn't really intentional, but after a while I decided to just give in to it. So here I bring you the, very, the first in a two-part documentary called Women in Words, Virginia and Friends. country of huge literary history and heritage. Crawling, in fact, especially with writers, and many of them women. As I discovered on a recent trip, which started with a visit to the Women's Library at the London School of Economics. So it began in 1926, and it was the collection, essentially, of the of a suffrage campaigning organisation called the London and National Society for Women's Suffrage, uh, and it was opened in 1926. So it was still a couple of years until the government passed the uh, 1928 Representation of the People's Act in the UK, which granted all women the right to vote. So at that time, it was still. A campaigning organization. It was branching out though to encourage women in professions and encourage them to get access to information which would help them find careers and jobs which had pretty recently been opened up to them uh, with the passing of the 1919 Sex Disqualification Act and that was a really kind of turning point for a lot of women in terms of getting them access to the legal career, medical career, that, those kind of jobs, professional jobs, which they hadn't been able to get access to before, so knowledge is power, as they say, and so they decided to form a library. That's the one that we, we still have today. Indy Buller is librarian of the specials collection at the Women's Library, and he's got a whole slew of women's stories to tell. Myra Sadbrown is another wonderful woman whose library we hold, a library in honour of her, and about 1925 she helped to found an organisation called the British Commonwealth League. That was an organisation which wanted to expand the feminist project, so-called, not only from the, the interests of women in the UK, but also looking at women in the colonies and to get access and education to women out in the colonies. It was a real trailblazing organization. Obviously at the time when the Commonwealth was still in full flow, it was kind of running against the grain, the mainstream perspectives, and was very much about empowering women out in the colonies. And they held annual conferences every year where they talk about interracial marriages, for example, and invite speakers from the colonies to come and talk about their lives. So it was with that in mind that the library decided to, with the help of Diana Dollery, who's the uh, granddaughter of, uh, of Myra, to set up a, a fund to purchase books about women in the former British colonies. So we have a fair amount of materials from uh, the Commonwealth as it is now, including South Africa and uh, India, Pakistan, uh, those countries. And it's a fabulous 
internationalizing aspect or element to the library. So it isn't just material related to women in the UK, although that is um, the heart and the kind of majority of the holdings are related to that. But it's it's a really nice perspective on on the fact that uh, Britain had its colonies and its empire and how those how those women from that time and later both influenced it and heard back from it. As it happens, not far away from the Women's Library is another oasis of women's writing, an almost exclusively women-only publisher. Persephone is the name of a Greek goddess who symbolizes rebirth, and a lot of these books would have been classics in their time and very, very well thought of and have fallen out of print. And as a publisher, we think they should have remained in print. So we have republished them and hope to keep them, all the books that we publish stay in print. They don't sort of, we don't do a, a finite run. We keep them and hope to do so. So inside this quintessentially feminine publishing house and shop, Jamila Ahmed explained what it is that they actually publish and why. Most of these books were published in between the two world wars, so they're very much of a certain era. They focus quite a lot on the domestic side of that time, so they are not big political novels, they are not trying to make huge points, they are much more a sort of a, a quieter statement. They should all be an enjoyable read, but also well written and have a very kind of soft political point to make about quite often the role of women on the home front or in the family generally. We have one called A Woman's Place, it's a non-fiction and it's much more about a sort of a historical look at it, but the rest of them are largely novels that you should be able to pick up and enjoy and not have to think about the agenda. I wondered then if they thought of themselves as more of a social than feminist commentary. Yeah, I think actually even saying a commentary puts it too strongly. They are a kind of curated list of books that once you read one or two, you get the hang of what we are about. And the quality of the writing is foremost, really. And some of them make their points more strongly than others, but essentially they're selected because they're good reads. But one of the most noticeable features of the Persephone books are their elegant and uniform covers. Originally it came slightly from you know the French books which are all very uniform in how they appear and they're not trying to shout about their covers and I think one of the things to do was to keep them looking the same, looking very classic and you know focusing very much on what's inside the book, what it's about but yes to keep them a, a, a beautiful object is important too. The end papers are all textile designs from the original time of publication and they come with a matching bookmark which is lovely in itself actually they're very popular as presents and they often begin very easily to lead to a collection because they are of a certain look it makes it for something different and in today's world of publishing where books are struggling these ones are quite resilient because they are a very particular look and people like that you can order these books anywhere in the world but generally buyers prefer to visit the shop and pick a piece in person they do up to six new titles a year. So who decides which those should be? The research and the idea is all from Nicola Bowman, whose book, A Very Great Profession, was published some time ago and looked at those forgotten 
writers and those underplayed themes in literature. And I think she's had a long time wish to do this and has brought them all together. I mean, we do sometimes get suggestions from readers or relatives of authors, which by and large, if they have been well respected at their time of publication, we look into and, you know, some of our very good sellers have come from that. So that's nice too. But the vision for it and the list is all from Nicola Bowman. And the writers are whom? Well, I think people are often quite surprised. We've got one by uh, Noel Stretfield, who wrote Ballet Shoes, and we've got Frances Hodgson Burnett, also writing an adult novel, you know, known for The Secret Garden. So people are quite drawn to those, uh, to know that you've got a kind of favourite children's author who's also written for adults. It's very good. But we have a lot of authors who people wouldn't ordinarily come across, and that, I think, is the beauty of it, to find someone who's writing you really enjoy who you wouldn't find in a big bookshop and who isn't in the current review papers. Miss Pettigrew lived for a day, is one of our bestsellers and has been made into a film by Winifred Watson. Dorothy Whipple is one of our best-selling authors, very kind of underrated in many circles, but really well-loved by Persephone readers. And my personal favourite is Fidelity by Susan Glaspell, an American author, who writes about a woman who returns to her hometown having left in disgrace some years before. Well, I had to ask, seeing as the shop is on the doorstep of the former home of the Bloomsbury Group, any Virginia Woolf titles? We have a collection of her edit, uh, edited letters and diary entries, which we publish, and we have one called Flush, which is uh, one of her lesser-known works. But really, they are broader than that, and I think that work is published elsewhere to great acclaim. But most of our authors are lesser-known lesser, lesser known names. Judging by the foreign accents in the shop, it would seem that they have a very international fan base. I suppose we must do. Um, it'd be interesting actually to, to find that out. I think we have got a very loyal fan base in terms of a mail order customer base, which is how we started out. So there are people who have been ordering from us from, from as long as when we started and have almost complete collections. And I think there are people who like the design of them and so we like to have a certain row of Persephone books and we hear of people who have a grey Persephone shelf and that kind of thing. But I think there is so much on offer that it, they must intermingle with normal everyday novels that are published today as well. Interesting that Persephone should have at least one Virginia Woolf in their collection and that the Women's Library have a first edition of her Room of One's Own published in 1929. But also that at Charleston, the country home of key members of the Bloomsbury Group in Sussex, guide Jill Pruden also cited Wolf as her favourite. So what was the story of Charleston? Okay, so Charleston, really our story, we start by moving back nearly a hundred years. So we're going back in time to 1916. So this house really started our story in 1916 when it became the home of two of the Bloomsbury artists, Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant. And it was, of course, the war which brought those two down here. Vanessa Bell, she was 37 by now and already married to the art critic Clive Bell. And there's his portrait. She'd married Clive back in 1907 and they'd had two little boys, Julian and Quentin Bell. And everything seemed to be fine until one day one turned to the other and said, you know, we're not making each other terribly happy, are we? And in quite a modern way, they decided at that moment they would have quite an open marriage. They would never divorce. They would always be friends. Clive would support the boys. And so that's how they went forward from that moment. But by 1916, she's in love with her fellow artist, Duncan Grant. 
and he is the conscientious objector, hence looking for the home in a rural location that he could go and labour on the land to be exempted from military service. And it was actually her sister, though, Virginia Woolf, living down the road um, at Asham House, walking on the downs, considering the problem that Vanessa had, that she needed this house. And as they walked along, they saw the roofs of Charleston, and she made inquiries of the Furl estate, Lord Gage. Could it be rented? They weren't intending to buy. They had no idea how long the war was going to last, of course. So she came down, they looked at the house briefly. She wrote that night to her sister, Vanessa, if you lived at Charleston, you could make it absolutely divine. And, of course, Virginia Woolf had insider knowledge of these two. She knew not only were they easel artists in the um, conventional sense of the word, and we're going to see evidence of this throughout the house, throughout every war, but they were also decorative artists and designers. Well, that kind of explains why every surface of Charleston is so very beautifully decorated. But where did Virginia and her writing fit into this? Of course... Vanessa actually was the one being the elder sister as well and had the advantage of going away and training at the academy schools in London whereas Virginia was home tutored and her father opened his had an extensive library but she always slightly held it against him and the rest of the world that she wasn't sent away as the brothers had been to school but really if we move along Vanessa Bell had a huge influence on her through the art world because as Virginia said much later after the post-impressionist exhibitions and how, how it was changing the way young artists were painting and she turned and said to Vanessa look literature is suffering from a plethora of old clothes we must throw representation to the wind as the artists have and follow suit and this was her deconstructing the novel even though you know it's quite a few years before she really got to that position perhaps not until she was writing the waves and some of those later novels but it was embedded uh, that idea of the way the artists were taking apart the old way of painting and she really saw that as being what she could do despite her fame though as a writer it's also well known of Virginia that she was a very troubled soul. Hermione Lee, her biographer, sums Virginia up in a way. She said Virginia Woolf was a sane woman who had an illness, and her illness was depression, which started early on after her mother died. She was only 13. Her stepsister Stella died. Her father died. Her brother died, Toby, suddenly of typhoid, and her much-loved brother. So these were always going to be troubling to her throughout her life. Vanessa was very much the sister who was always having to know and be aware that Virginia might well take her life. But it seems that she had cause to be depressed and did eventually take her own life. She wrote two notes, one to Leonard, one to Vanessa. Her one to Leonard said, no two people could have been more happy than we have been. But I feel now I'm going to another dark, did she say, depression? And I don't think I will come out of it this time. Of course, you have to put this in the context of where it was. It was 1941. We were in the darkest days of the Second World War. She knew Hitler had a list, and all the people on that list would be the Jewish people, and Leonard was Jewish. And also the intellectuals were on that list. She was on the list. So that was in her head she saw herself as a burden at that moment as well her flat in london where she loved so much was had just been bombed at that moment she didn't know where to go she likened herself to a small kitten looking for somewhere to you know to hide really and she picked up her books from the mud and the you know the the dirt of the bombing and brought them back to monk's house and tried to repair them but um you know it was difficult you know, i think that's really the war was the final straw so what happened twice actually she went off one day from monk's house in rodmel in sussex 
and walked down to the river, but then came back again. And then on the final day, she took her stick and walked. Uh, she gathered stones and put them into her pockets and then walked into the river. And sadly, I mean, her body wasn't found for three weeks. In her lifetime, though, she was lucky enough to have the support of her husband. The person who really saved Virginia Woolf, and we never would have had so much work had it not been for Leonard Woolf. Some people sometimes unkindly say he was her keeper in a way, but he wasn't. He was her protector. And that suicide note, which makes people still weep, she recognised that in that last moment, you know, before she walked away. But certainly Leonard would be the person who you'd have to cite as being the person who, who kept her going. So which of Wolf's books would guide Jill choose as her favourite? That's a difficult one because then you're caught in the which one you liked most, which one you enjoyed most or which are the most significant. I think lots of people would cite The Waves as perhaps being the most important work maybe of her life. But personal thing, I, I mean, I really loved Mrs. Dalloway <laughs> and uh, just, just the beauty in that book. But easier, however, was to comment on her legacy. Well, the latest book just I've just read last week was Maggie G's Virginia Woolf in Manhattan. You know, there she still comes up all the time. You can't really turn a corner in literature without Virginia Woolf. The lesson she still has, perhaps we should still carry on looking, still try carrying on reinventing the novel. Prudden, guide at Charleston, country home of the literary and artistic Bloomsbury Group, talking there about Virginia Woolf and her legacy. Next week in the second part of Women in Words, from Austin to Agatha. Compiled and presented by me, Nancy Richards, with technical assistance by Garnet in Quinica.